Hey folks, Dave Harvey here, and I want to welcome you to the Am I Called podcast, where today we wade into the complex and somewhat emotionally charged topic of racial justice and the church. And I'm really excited because joining me today uh, via the wonders of FaceTime is Dr. Carl Ellis. Dr. Ellis has, well, just an enormous bio. I mean, he is an author, he's a speaker, he is the pastor of cultural apologetics at New City Fellowship. Uh, Dr. Ellis holds a PhD from Oxford. But uh, I, I think the part of his story that I'm particularly grateful for is that Dr. Ellis was one of my first professors at the Center for Urban Theological Study back in Philadelphia in the late 80s. So, Dr. Ellis, it's great to have you with us. Thanks for agreeing to talk with me today. It's great to be with you, man. Uh, it's been a few years since uh, since Philly. It <laughs> certainly has. And, and you're in Chattanooga now, right? I am. I am. So what what's a pastor of cultural apologetics? <laughs> that is a, that's a long way from conventional titles for pastoral ministry. What's yeah, that all about? Yeah, well, actually, uh, you know, while I have a pastor's heart, I'm actually into the more, uh, I'm into more of the academic end of, uh, of, of ministry. So I'm a seminary prof and, um, and uh, that kind of thing. Uh, but, uh, what, but what I do is, is apologetics. And, I, and I'm, I, I, guess, I guess you can call me a theological anthropologist, all right? So I, I observe culture, I analyze culture, I figure out ways that uh, we can communicate the gospel into the culture using the language and idiom of the culture. But at the same time, I'm looking for the light of God's testimony that shines in every culture, as Acts chapter 14 says, and looking to see where God is already at work in people's lives or, or within a culture and then build on what God is doing there and then teach others to do, to do the same thing. Yeah, that's, that's fascinating in and of itself. Let me just drop into that for a second. So for a, a, a pastor listening or an aspiring pastor listening, who's saying, you know what, I, I realize I need to be the same kind of thing. I need to be studying my culture uh, within my community and understanding it so that I could reach it. What are some of the ways that you train people to study culture? Well, I help them understand, first of all, the first thing you absolutely need to know is the whole broad sweep of the biblical narrative. I mean, you know, the whole development of the covenant, all the way from um, the covenant of creation, which we broke and we came under the curse, to the covenant of salvation, which has two phases to it, the old covenant and the new covenant. The old covenant looks forward to what God is going to do to solve the problem. And of course, the new covenant looks back on what God did to solve the problem. Uh, but when we look at that and we see the kind of things that are near and dear to God's heart, um, and we see how this the consciousness of God develops because God is at work in the lives of people and in the cultures. Uh, like Romans chapter one says that uh, everybody knows God one way or the other, you know, uh, and but people suppress that truth. So the, the thing that I try to get folks to see is what is it that God is actually saying uh, within that context? And then how are people trying to suppress that truth? Um, yeah. Yeah. 
So that's 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 important. That's good. Um, you know, I was thinking about your uh, your 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 bio and some of your own theological journey um, into this role that you're presently in, and it it actually goes all the way back to some study that you did under. Francis Schaeffer, you were at Labrie, correct? That's right. Yeah, That's so right. how did that opportunity come about? All right, that was kind of crazy. Um, I, when I first got saved, um, you know, I, I, okay, let's go all the way back. I, 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 you know, aspirin, for example, if you have a headache, aspirin, you take aspirin to get, gets, gets rid of the headache, right? Aspirin is a wonderful substance, but some people are allergic to aspirin, Okay church as we know it today is as much a culture as it is a a spiritual community all right i just happen to be one of those people that's allergic to church culture but i wasn't <laughs> allergic to god right you know so, so i i was raised in the church and i i just i just couldn't i just couldn't deal with the the cultural aspect right? the music the the procedures all that the traditions all those things just just really just grated at me, you know. But but I long to know God, you know. So long story short, I you know I guess I'd call myself an unchurchable, okay. Uh-huh. Uh huh. You know, in my natural sense, in, in my natural uh, state. Uh, but some other unchurchables came by who had become Christians, and they were able to answer my questions and sh- and t- explain the gospel to me in language that I could I could understand. I didn't I, I didn't understand church language gospel you know what i'm saying like you got to accept jesus as your personal savior I, I didn't know what that meant you know but these guys were able to break it down to me in my language and my understanding and of course i couldn't resist the holy spirit so that was the first step the, the way i came to christ the second thing that happened was was uh once i had become a christian i was ready to go all in on the church i was ready to get all totally absorbed in the church uh but then my pastor thought evidently thought I was a part of a cult and he kicked me out. So I stayed out of the church for about five years of my, my first five years of my Christian life, but I was being discipled very well by these unchurchable guys that led me to Christ. So those, those are the two things that kind of set the direction of my life. And in, in the, in the years that followed, you know, I did develop the ability to function within church culture because now I understand what's going on. You know what I'm saying? So the, the the goodness I see it overrides the allergy that I naturally have, and that's why I've even been a pastor and all that. So I do have a pastor's heart. So that's how all that started. So, um, but up to two years into my Christian life, I kind of thought that uh, the gospel was just for personal salvation. I, I didn't know that biblical, you know, the Bible really could address anything outside of that, the personal realm. That's because that's that's how I understood it. And then I ran into uh, uh, a, a man who had just gotten back from Labrie at an university conference, and he was the main speaker. And he was using Christianity to, to criticize philosophy and sociology. I had never heard anything like that, and that kind of blew me away. And that kind of turned me on to apologetics. I had never heard of apologetics before, but that turned me on. And of course, he then uh, introduced me to uh, Francis Schaeffer, uh and and all and you know that's how i found out about him and that's how i ended up five, five, i think it was like five years later i ended up going to labrie okay. uh, as a matter of fact i had actually met schaefer at a conference and he invited me so that's how i went 
Wow. It really, it really, uh, it really had a profound effect on me in that it helped me to understand the whole idea of worldview and all that. I mean, it's just, a, it was kind of tailor-made for me, you know, so, Were there so any, that's kind of how I got into it. Yeah. Do you have any like Labrie moments or Francis Schaeffer moments that uh, you experienced while you were there that were, that were the moment itself, what was being said, what was being shared was defining to you in some way that you knew would mark you in some way? Well, I, I, I think, you know, before I went to library, I'd read everything that Schaefer had to write. So I was pretty up on Schaefer, you know, so I got there and I didn't, I don't think I heard anything new per se. I mean, with, uh, from him, well, actually, uh, I, I, I did. We heard a lot from Oz Guinness too, because he was there at the time, and Oz really, really uh, kind of opened up some things too. But I think the thing that shaped me was, up to that point, I was developing a kind of a, uh, a theological understanding of what was going on uh, in the whole African American uh, context, because uh, you, you got to remember that in uh, uh, before 1967. Just about all African Americans were the overarching strategy for success in America was to assimilate into the dominant culture. That's what we were all trying to do. Uh, we weren't Negroes; we were just Americans. You know, that's what we wanted to do. And of course, we kept hitting the brick wall. You know, and in '67, Black consciousness came out, and uh, all of a sudden, we went from being assimilational to identificational, and that it was like it was like turning the world upside down. And so I was wrestling with all of that. What does it mean to be black conscious and Christian and all that? And all my nice, neat evangelical categories and doctrines failed me at that point. You know, I even went to my nearest Christian bookstore to pick up books on how to minister to black militants. And there was nothing, you know. So so in desperation, this sounds crazy, but in desperation, I just turned to the Bible. <laughs> mm. I started reading from Genesis 1. And um, when I got up to around the prophets and everything, I saw the prophets talking about justice and compassion and, and oppression and all these very same things that the black militants were, uh, were arguing about and debating uh, on my campus. And suddenly I realized I was sold a bill of goods because the theology that I had, my nice, neat evangelical theology, didn't cover any of these issues. And here the Bible was covering them completely. So that was a, that was a piece in the journey too. So, having done that, then what happened is that a, a basic framework for understanding uh, the African American experience from a theological perspective began to develop in my mind. So when I went to La Brie, uh, after all my studies, I presented a paper uh, to the La Brie community uh, that uh, pretty much I pretty much outlined the. The, the 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 vision that I had in terms of um, how the African-American experience developed under the sovereignty of God. And it was very well received. Schaefer really loved it. And so that was that really put me on my way to really understanding um, not only the African-American experience, but every cultural uh, history or whatever uh, from a biblical uh, perspective. What year would that have been, Dr. Ellis? Uh, my time at Labrie was in 71. So, so was there any part of your journey that took you, you know, into the world of, you know, liberation theology or James Cone and, um, and identifying with, with that material? To some extent. I mean, as I was developing, uh, I, as far as 60, as early as 69, I was really 
really, I really had a lot of this framework developed and nobody else that I knew was doing it. And then I finally did run into James Cone and uh, I began to read his, his things. And just to be frank with you, <laughs> I didn't think James Cone's uh, uh, material was radical enough. Okay. Um, in, in this sense, um, liberation is a good thing. Liberation is biblical. It's uh, it's, it's a very good thing. And of course, it's obviously better than oppression, but liberation without transformation is really not much. You know, the thing that I love about the biblical view of liberation, it comes with transformation. And uh, the problem, my problem with the liberation theologians is that they don't have the transformational element there. And uh, yeah, without transformation, it leads to revolution. That, that's that's right. I mean, the good kind of revolution, you know, um, uh, you, you know, I just find that the, uh, you know, the liberation theologians have have do have given some pretty good insights on things. But I, I find their their whole their whole basis for, you know, their whole basis for their um yeah, when I talk, about, I talk about modern liberation theology. I find the whole basis to be a bit lacking, and uh, like I said, it's not as radical as it needs to be. The Bible is far more radical than that. Well, let's let's talk for a few minutes about um, you know the modern day landscape. You know, I'm, I'm thinking that we're we're only months out of the, a presidency where <laughs> Obama held the presidency for eight years. And I'm just curious as you as you look back on his administration and all of that, all what that represented. Do you find that the issues of racial justice have been substantially advanced as a result of the mm. administration? Uh, yes and no. Um, I think the idea. Okay, here's the thing. There were there's a lot of people running around in this country who are saying that racism is this huge problem. And it is. It's a huge problem. It's a, it's, a, it's a major problem in America. But it's not the only place where we have problems. All over the world, you have these same dynamics going on, but they might be based on tribe, they might be based on caste or geography or whatever. But these same dynamics are going on all, all, all over the place. And so uh, there are a lot of people who are running around. Okay, let, let me say this. Racism is a major problem, but racism is not everything. Does that make sense? Uh, yeah. Um, you know, uh, there are a lot of people uh, running around saying, you know, how racist America is and all that. And I'm, 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 I, I grant that. But when Obama was elected, it showed that racism was not as big a problem as some of these people said it was. Because, uh, I mean, look, let's face it. Uh, when Obama got into the race in uh, 08, um, you know, Hillary, uh, of all the black Democrats, Hillary probably had 90% of them. And uh, they saw Obama as just as a, another also ran, like uh, Al Sharpton or Jesse Jackson before him. And so we, we the, the group think was, oh, Obama's just a black candidate. All right. Then we get all the way out to Iowa. And he wins the Iowa caucuses, and all of a sudden, a whole new, uh, an epiphany moment comes. Everybody says, wait a minute, Obama is a candidate, not just a black candidate. And the uh, the, the tide began to shift. And um, 
of course, we know what, what, what happened. So that was a major breakthrough. I mean, the fact that we elected an African-American as president, uh, I don't want to diminish that. However, I would say that, uh, uh, that you know, uh, his policies, okay, let's, I, I distinguish between Obama's policies and Obama and the persona of Obama. Here's a, here's a man married to one wife, great father, great kids, you know, all that. He had a swagger about him that, uh, with that would make me feel proud when I'd see him mount the, the uh, uh, podium or whatever, you know. I really like the guy, okay? He's the kind of guy I'd be good friends with. However, in my opinion, his policies probably set us back in some ways. Um, uh, Which because policy policy. are you thinking of? Well, some of the things like, let's put it this way, African-Americans were not, are, are, are not as well off. Well, they are not as well off as they were before he came in, you know. Um, some of the policies, some of the policies that come from the far left, he began to uh, implement. Now, understand, I am not uh, a far right. As a matter of fact, I'm not a, a conservative and I am not a liberal. I just... While I have agreements with both of those ideologies in some areas, I don't have enough agreement to be one. Okay, I, I just I, so I'm not, I'm not, I, I'm neither. So I got my issues with conservatives and liberals, as far as I'm concerned. But um, the um, uh, some of the some of the policies that had to do with uh, recognizing, well, it, you know, there's a lot of things, but recognizing the the nature of the uh, the radical Islamic threat, uh, some of the policies that uh, he pushed, um, you know, the whole um, LGBT ag agenda. Uh, generally speaking, African Americans have not been as on board with that as a lot of fo other folks are, and uh, that kind of got people and, and, don't, and don't get me wrong i believe in human rights for everybody okay i believe in human rights for everybody and i would fight just as hard against discrimination um and uh persecution of gays as i would anybody else okay so please don't put me in that category of a of a, a homophobe i mean you know gosh i got well i got people that i'm close to who are who are of that persuasion, but they're still in the image of God. So I'm not going to get into all of that. But I just think that some of his, um, the policies about um, uh, extending some of the, like Obamacare, for example, that knocked off so many people from their health care. I mean, I'm talking about African-Americans, uh, things like that. Yeah, um, his policies reflected at certain points his his party more than the historic black community. That's exactly right. Yeah. His party or his ideology. Yeah. Right. That was, that was my problem with Obama. And, 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 and let me say this, I am not too pleased. Uh, I am not at all pleased with the choice I had in this last election. <laughs> so much so that when I went into the polling booth, I wrote, I, I scratched out their names that I wrote, in bold letters, none of the above. I mean, that's how disgusted I am about. <laughs> well, I think I think a lot of people did a lot of unusual things like that in this last election. I, I think so. I think so. You know, when I think about um, civil rights uh, and early civil rights, or 
or the, the torchbearers of the justice issue for the black community. It would have been historically uh, movements that were driven by um, African-American pastors, African-American churches. Is there any sense where the mantle for that has shifted from the church uh, to the political realm, to politicians because of, of President Obama? The hope is more uh, politically driven now? Uh, I, I wouldn't say that it was because of Obama. I would say Obama would be in the stream of that shift. Does that make sense? Yes. Um, yeah. See, what happened, what people don't realize is that the civil rights movement, as we know it, was was driven by theology. It was driven by historic African-American theology. And this theology, there were, there were, there were two strands of historic African-American theology. One was a, a theology of suffering in the Exodus paradigm, and the other is was a theology of empowerment in the exilic paradigm. So, so the civil rights movement in the classical sense of the word arose in the Southern context where the prevailing strand of theology was the theology of suffering in the Exodus paradigm. And so that's why King began to say things like undeserved suffering is redemptive, uh, the whole nonviolent uh, approach. The, the whole approach of the civil rights movement was moral persuasion, moral persuasion. And it was well suited for the South because the South had a strong Christian ethos. Now, having said the strong Christian ethos, it was a heretical strong Christian ethos, okay? Because, uh, because uh, at, you know, if you, if you do not view human beings as being in the image of God and treat them accordingly, then as far as I'm concerned, you're in heresy, at least on the ethical side of theology. So that's what, that's what was the problem with the South was. But there was this thing there. There was enough of an interface of the strong Christian ethos that it really uh, struck to the heart of the issue and really caused some serious repentance. Now, I'm not saying the civil rights movement uh, solved everything, but it certainly made things better. Um, so that's what was driving the 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 the, the system, the, uh, the civil rights movement, which was a southern phenomenon. Now, in the north, you had um, you didn't have that strong Christian ethos, and in the north, it was more appropriate to use more of a power kind of a coercion basis, and that's why. Um, a lot of the uh, people from the North, when they participated in the Civil Rights Movement in the South, they were not as enamored with the whole nonviolent uh, direct action approach. They wanted to do more in terms of, uh, you know, power, uh, uh, you know, guns, that kind of thing. Um, that there it lies the real difference between Malcolm X and Martin Luther King. See, Malcolm was he was a champion of the Northern strategy. King was a champion of the Southern strategy. So what has happened in the intervening years is that I think what went wrong with the those who inherited the civil rights movement is that they, two two errors were made. One, they looked to the nonviolent method itself as the basis for the advance, but actually the basis for the advance was the power of the word of God, as dramatized by the nonviolent uh, method. And the second thing they looked to was the fact that since the political landscape began to bend and began to change people thought maybe the future is in politics and so a lot of people then began to get into politics you know uh, I think about John Lewis and others 
thinking that that is how you carry on the legacy of the civil rights movement. But politics is not really a very uh, effective way to carry on a movement like that. Uh, the secret to making a movement work is is fighting the battle on the basis of the uh, on the cultural basis rather than the political basis. As the culture goes, so goes the politics, but not the other way around. Well, now in the north, it, huh? seems to, it seems to detach from what has been historically the source of uh, of justice for the black community. Which absolutely, is absolutely, it, right, and, right, right, and, and displaces it. That's right, and the source of the of the of the justice is not in politics, although politics is an important piece. You know, as a matter of fact, when you think about it. Um, people like the moral majority, even they made the same, the very same mistake. They thought that they could fight the disturbing trends that were happening politically, but they should have fought it culturally. And uh, and I I have to I have to give it to the LGBT community uh, because they fought their battle very wisely. They they fought it on the basis of culture, culture in the direction they wanted it to go, and that's why they made all this progress. They they have. They have understood the secret to, to, to changing the world, as it were. And I think, and I'm just, you know, a little uh, uh, quite disappointed that the Christian community, with all this biblical history, with, 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 with what God has shown us, that somehow we've missed that, that lesson. And so, uh, you know, yeah. we're, we're kind of talking over the, over the sweep of the last 30, 40 years, and it, it brings to mind, um, some of the major events within the black community that I'm thinking about, like 25 years ago, you have um, the Rodney King beating and uh, the officers being acquitted for that. And then Los Angeles burning for, for six days. And then, you know, fast forward 25 years later and, you know, the names of Michael Brown, Alton yeah. and, Delonte yeah. Castile, um, they're you know they they've filled the news cycles and yeah. and so I'm I'm wondering you know as we're thinking about this issue of justice and uh, and the church, Doctor Ellis, what are the conversations that the church needs to be having about these kind of events about these these beatings? What is it that we need to understand? What is it that we need to be saying? Well, I think the church needs to be very careful when we respond to these kind of events to make sure that our facts are right. That we don't jump out on the first mythological statements that are made about these events. You know, there there are, um, uh, you know, for example, I mean, look, I, I was very, very disturbed by what happened to Mike Brown, Okay. And the reason that I was disturbed about that, because I know a number of Mike Browns in my life right now. I'm dealing with them right now, and they are struggling. They have their, they have one foot in what I call achieverism, and the other foot in non-achieverism. They're kind of, uh, kind of going back and forth. And I've seen enough cases where, with the right kind of mentoring and discipleship and whatever, these guys can make the step in the right direction, and they can do, and they can do great things. I've seen it happen in my whole life. 
And Mike, I think, was at that point. I mean, here, here on one hand, he's getting ready to go to college. On the other hand, he's sticking up a, 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 a store for some cigars. But I understand that he had given the, the, the proprietor something to hold for him, and he wouldn't give it back, and that's why he took, took it. I don't know all the, all the details. But having said all that, uh, that disturbed me. And the other thing that disturbed me was the fact that uh, a lot of people really get on, get on, you know, get on his case for being hostile or uh, towards the cop. But if you had seen the, the behavior of the police in Ferguson and, and other places like that over the years, I mean, they were they were being very unprofessional. They were being uh, very unjust, you know, slapping fines on people for the m- most minor things and all that, because that's how they were raising their money for their city budgets. So you have all that together. The thing that bothered me was the myth went out that he had his hands he said, you know, he had his hands up and said don't shoot. That didn't happen as far as I know. But that was the first myth that got out there and that's what caught on. So if, if we're going you know the church needs to we need to say speak to these kind of issues. But we have to make sure that we don't uh get uh, get caught up in the hysteria of the myths that are put out at first because the myths are put out there by people who are, I think, some of some of whom are are unscrupulous and they want to foment a lot of turmoil because that's how they get their power or whatever. But I think the church needs to really speak to the real issues. You know, the, the Mike Brown situation was 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 an instance of injustice, I do believe, and uh, and it's something to be disturbed about and something to protest about. That's the other thing. A lot of the protesters in Ferguson, I know these folks, uh, they were genuinely protesting, but some people came in. Who wanted to take advantage of the situation, uh, you know, for their own purposes, from the outside, and they uh, they kind of gave the whole thing a taint of uh, anarchy and you know all that, and that's what happened. That's what's happened in several of these other cases. But we have to make sure that we respond right on the money in terms of where the injustice was. At the same time, we have to look at the context. Um, you know, I have to say that. From the context of a policeman, I mean, you know, I mean, they're constantly under under a whole lot of stress. You know what I'm saying? It's very difficult to make wise decisions in a split second. I mean, mistakes are made. Uh, so I'm not going to charge every situation like that with, uh, say, it's a matter of white supremacy and all that kind of stuff. But on the other hand, though, there is a lot of cultural insensitivity. That's what I'm saying. That's There's a lot of cultural alienation going on. Uh, between uh, uh, different folks. I mean, right here in Chattanooga, uh, we see some of the same kind of things, but uh, like in Baltimore, the Freddie Gray case, I mean, how are you going to charge racism on the part of the policeman when three of the six involved were black? You know, there was something going on, but it wasn't necessarily racism. It was some other, it was, it was some other things going on that, uh, that we have to pinpoint correctly. I think that's what the church needs to, uh, the church needs to clarify things and to speak wisely. And and maybe to uh, yeah. you you tell me if this is near the mark, but maybe to understand that you know there's a body of experience that when you know uh, a, a black man or an African American woman hears about a Castile incident, there's going to be a, an immediate visceral reaction. Absolutely. That, it, that Absolutely. says, "Oh no, not not again." It's That's right. Again. That's but, exactly right. Whereas a white guy's not going to have that. That's right. That's right. That's right. For us, 
See, when you're in the subdominant culture, when you let, let me say, if you're in the dominant culture, you think you tend to think as an individual. Everybody does that, you know. That's just one of those things. If you're in the subdominant culture, you're constantly reminded that you are a part of a group, and so there's more of a group consciousness. Yeah. So whenever these things happen, yeah, we feel it personally, and that is that visceral thing, and we got to understand that. Um, now here's, let me extend that a little bit. The church in America needs to have that same visceral feeling when it comes to others in the body of Christ. The church in America does not do this. Um, so, um, but there's a reason for that. Uh, but we're going to have to learn how to do that. What's because, the reason for that? Well, because the church has, Christianity in America has enjoyed the perks of the dominant culture. The dominant culture gets more perks than the subdominant culture. That's just that's just human nature. And because we have enjoyed the perks of the dominant culture, the because Christianity has enjoyed the perks of the dominant culture, American Christianity, especially in the dominant culture, has not thought viscerally like that. Um, but we're a part of the body. Um, and uh, we need to start thinking along those lines. Now, as anti-Christian hostility increases, then we're going to start thinking that way more. We're going to start thinking in, in terms of the body of Christ uh, more. But so that, that that's, that, again, that's a general phenomenon that happens. So, you know, even African-Americans, we think that way because, like I said, we are, the, the assumption is that, uh, and it's a and it's a justified assumption that if you're in the subdominant culture, you experience oppression more than you would in, in, the, in the dominant culture, and so therefore there's a shared experience, and uh, there are assumptions made that are pretty understandable, and uh, so those are the kind of things that we have to recognize. But at the same time, the church, we as Christians, need to, with that understanding, need to speak truth and wisdom, and um, and clarity, uh, so that folks won't be manipulated. We don't want we. It's okay to protest. That's fine, but we don't want people coming and manipulating people who protest or whatever. We don't. We don't want that. Are you encouraged at all by the burdens that you're seeing within the next generation? I mean, you're a cultural anthropologist, and you give a lot of time and thought into what's going on generationally. You know, are are the millennials, for instance, are they being woke? to advance racial justice or are we are we just having the same conversations that we were having 20 years ago i think we're having the same conversations we're having that we had 20 years ago I, I i first of all i want to encourage the millennials to be woke i mean but <laughs> they don't understand a lot of my millennial friends don't understand that i was woke before they were born <laughs> <laughs> and i got books and movies to prove it you know but uh, but I, I think the sense of wokeness today on a part of a lot of Christian millennials, let me put it that way, uh, what they are doing, they're deriving their, their uh, articulation of the issues, not from scripture, but from ideology and philosophy that's floating around today. And this ideology and philosophy while they use some terms that we would agree with or, you know, some words that we would agree with based on our definitions, those words do not have those definitions in the general culture. So 
Um, what what I am what I am pushing for is for us to really do some real serious, robust theology around these issues, uh, and be able to express that because if we just go with the ideology and the philosophy out there, then it's not we're not seeing anything different than those who don't. Uh, you know, love Christ in the first place, you know. Uh, Our whole reason for being here is to bring glory to God and it'd be about the Great Commission. And if we're not about that, then I think we're we're not doing the right thing. Now, as I said, I could be an articulate spokesman against racism, against all the rest of that, but I've got to do it in such a way that I, uh, I, I bring glory to God. And sometimes it, sometimes you know, it needs. Uh, it sometimes we need to do do some tough love, you know, <laughs> and sometimes we can be, uh, you know, more compassionate or whatever. I mean, you know, there is a prophetic function that we must have. So, I, I don't think that a lot of my millennial friends are aware of that other dimension. Now, having said that, my wife and I have put together an institute where we are actually training millennials to do just what we're talking about. So it's not we're not, we're not just wringing our hands and complaining, but we're trying to do something about it. When, you know, when we think about bringing glory to God on this whole issue of, of racial justice, I, 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 I'm begin thinking about some of our listeners who are, are going to be pastors, leaders, people that are aspiring to leadership, um, maybe even there's uh, suburban pastors listening and uh, they, they're, they're serving or leading churches that are populated primarily by people of their own color or people listening that are living in communities primarily of people of their own color. So what does a commitment to racial justice look like um, when you're not living in or dealing with uh, or among people of, of another color? Well, I, I think what we need to do is that I, I, I tell people all the time um, uh, that all churches, let's say, in America must be cross-cultural, just period. All right. Now, that doesn't necessarily mean that they have to have look like the United Nations. <laughs> Does that make sense? I mean, you know, if, if, I'm, if, I, if I'm living in northern Idaho, I'm not going to run into a whole lot of Africa, African-Americans, for example, or even Latinos, for that matter. But if I'm pastoring a church in northern Idaho, I'm going to help my congregation understand and appreciate uh, cultural expressions that are different from theirs. I mean, like, for example, in my church, church I go to right now, um, for years, for years, we, some of our the songs we sing were in Spanish. We weren't doing that to get Latinos to come to our church. We just liked the, liked the music. We liked the words, you know. And uh, Latinos began to come to our church, and that's great. Um, some of our songs are in Swahili. We're not trying to get East Africans to come migrate over here to America to come. But the reason that we have that is because we have strong relationships with churches over in Kenya and places like that. And sometimes... People come over here to study. They go to our church. They, they introduce us to, you know, music from their church and vice versa. So uh, 
whether the church has a representative of all the cultures is one thing, but the thing is, I think all churches need to really appreciate and like um, different uh, expressions of praise and worship uh, in different cultural uh, contexts. And um, if we can do that, if we can really get to, to the point where we love the cultures, where we love the cultural expressions, then it won't be a problem. I mean, you know, people come to uh, to our church from those cultures. One of the uh, yeah yeah yeah. I mean, I, I just I it, all churches must have that because look, that's what we're gonna have to deal with in heaven anyway. You know, Re Revelation seven. Yeah, <laughs> that's where it's all going. Um, you know, one of the obstacles that that in, as I've thought about this and even sought to build a model of it from a suburban context is that, you know, when, when Dr. Martin Luther King would say, or, or said that 11 a.m. Sunday morning is the most segregated hour of the week, yeah. that that wasn't simply a statement about racism, but that was an expression of, of preference as well. That people, That's right. That people want to worship with people of their own color. And so it's not just that, uh, you know, we're going to be able to sell a vision of, of well, reconciling people, but there's these strong cultural historical yeah. impulses that right. when it comes to worship, I want to gravitate to be among my own. And, yeah, well, and yeah. how, how do you dismantle that? Right. People are, it's not so much people of their own color, it's people of their own culture. Because, you know, like <laughs> you take a, a white suburban Presbyterian church, I, I'm, I'm sure they would have a hard time uh, dealing with uh, uh, good old boys who go to uh, Waffle House. Does that make sense? Yeah. It would be the same, it would be the same kind of thing. Uh, yeah, we we all have preferences, obviously. You know, we all have like, you know, when I hear gospel music, it, it, it expresses my heart better than uh, country music, okay? Uh, I just have to say that. However, I have, you know, if I hear people worshiping God in a, in a country music idiom, though it, country music is not in my heart and all the rest of that, I can appreciate the fact that they're worshiping God and I can learn to uh, appreciate the music, you know, which I do, you know, and, uh, uh, I, I, you know, I wouldn't necessarily go out and buy a steel guitar, but I mean, you know, what I'm saying I, I do understand <laughs> that, um, you know, that that is worship. And, uh, and I've been in overseas, I've been in situations where the worship was a lot different than, uh, than, than what, what we're used to. But I've, I've come to appreciate that because I know that we're worshiping mm -hmm. the one true God. I think that, I think that the, the thing that we have to be careful about is being culture bound. Okay. It's it's one thing to to have cultural preferences, but if you're bound so much that you cannot break out of that, then I think that's where we get into sin. That that begins to get into idolatry. Okay, when we begin to uh, idolize our culture. That's a great yeah. distinction: cultural yeah. bound versus cultural preferences. Right, Doctor Ellis. Let me uh, let me make this my last question, but I want to pick up on what you mentioned earlier when you talked about the institute that you started. Um, why don't you just tell our listeners a little bit about that and then any other resources or recommendations you have for um, somebody that wants to grow in their understanding of racial justice? Okay. All right. Well, our institute, we are seeking to, de de overall, what we are trying to do is we are trying to 
influence the culture in the direction of biblical wisdom. Okay, that's what we're trying to do. Now, how do we do this? We're seeking to raise up people who who recognize uh, the the subdominant reality, uh, who can who can begin to um, speak God's word or God's wisdom to the culture in the language of the culture with 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 clarity with creativity with courage and with confidence uh in essence what we're trying to do is that you you, you take for example um if jesus is prophet priest and king and he is the body of christ must be prophetic priestly and kingly right and theological education must was, must prepare people for all three of those functions. Now, each one of those functions have dozens and dozens of uh, manifestations. Uh, the, the problem we have today, I think, is that our existing theological institutions, all you know, they all say that they want to train pastors, and that's good. That's a good thing. But that's the priestly function. But who is raising up? Who is training people to, to function in the prophetic function? Okay. Uh, who, who, where are the, where are the, 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 the institutes that are that are producing uh, uh, d- deliberately intentionally producing cultural prophets uh, people like Francis Schaeffer people like uh, C.S. Lewis uh, people who actually uh, have spoken to the culture and actually influenced the culture of biblical wisdom thought leaders people who could really uh, uh, crystallize things for folks and to help them to understand the reality of God. Who's doing that? Nobody. Uh, well, nobody that we know of. So instead of letting it happen haphazardly, we are setting out to do it deliberately. And that's what our institution, our institute is all about. Uh, we have another branch of our institution that is seeking to do that very same thing on the local level. Um, you know, we are training young men, equipping young men to really be able to shepherd and disciple unchurchable young men out there and to, uh, to, to, to bring them together in missional communities that are appropriate for who they are. And, uh, and just because they are allergic to church culture does not mean that they should be uh, uh, denied access to, to Christ. Does that make sense? Yeah. And of course, as, as these missional communities mature, then eventually they'll come around to seeing uh, you know, how valuable the existing church is. You were asking? Yeah, I was just going to ask, um, how can someone listening uh, get a hold of you or get a hold of material or, you know, is there a website? Is there... Okay, a website. Uh, we, we we haven't, we're not up and running yet completely. You know, we got uh, this local thing we got going, but this, our institute is a fellows program. It's, it's, we haven't done our first one. We're still trying to, raise the funding for it, but we have a website. It's called Makazi Institute. It's M-A-K-A-Z-I Institute dot org. And uh, you get on there and it'll tell you all about it. We, we call it Makazi because, well, it's interesting. Our house, we get people coming in from all over the country, many parts of the world, coming on, spending days with us, picking our brains because, you know, many of these are theological students and they're not getting what they need to deal with uh, the situations that they have to deal with. Okay. And so they come and they, you know, pick our brains, they use our library, they look at our documentaries and we, we help to put together uh, 
a package for them so they could be properly equipped. So people began to start calling us Black Labrie, okay? And um, and uh, so one day we had a, uh, a missionary from uh, East Africa uh, here, and uh, I asked, I said, well, what would be the Swahili word for Labrie, which means shelter, the shelter, right? He said Makazi, so therefore we started calling ourselves Makazi, the Makazi uh, Institute. So, uh, so we have a couple of couple of manifestations of it. We have the informal thing where people come by and we spend some time, but we have the fellows program, which is a formal thing uh, that uh, we'll be starting up pretty soon. And then we have the local, uh, the local expression, which we've already started. So, uh, MakaziInstitute.org. That's where you can find us. And then our our website. My wife and I. It's called Ellis Perspectives. No, yeah, ellisperspectives.org. So you could get on that website and find out about us. And then, of course, there's a link to the Mikazi Institute from that um, from that uh, website. Well, Dr. Ellis, I'm, I'm very grateful for your time, and I'm very grateful for your ministry over all these years in advancing these conversations and in seeking to to build and disciple men and women to understand why they're so important from the Word of God. So thanks for joining us today. You got it. Uh, it's my honor to be with you. So for our listeners, just a reminder, uh, this podcast is is part of a, a suite of services at amicall.com. I just got an email recently from a guy down in New Zealand who wrote to say how helped he was and his desire to support and circulate the material. So Check it out if you, you need uh, help on leadership resources. There's other podcasts. If you're just in other discussions on race, this, there's one that was done with the BD and Yubwile and uh, a number of other podcasts as well, as along with articles and other stuff like that. And all of it's free. So check it out. And thanks for joining us today. Am I called? Mm-hmm.